from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. If you would please turn your pew Bibles to Psalm 125, which can be found on page 540 in the Old Testament. Let us listen now to God's word. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time and on forevermore. For the scepter of the wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, so that the righteous might not stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside their own crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Our second text for this morning comes from Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, the ninth chapter, verses 6 through 15. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. The point is this. The one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. As it is written, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, his righteousness endures forever." He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that he has given you. Thanks be to God for God's indescribable gift. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Break open your word afresh to us, O oh God, this morning, so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space, even to be more like Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. St. Francis of Assisi once said, Start by doing what is necessary. Start by doing what is necessary, then do what's possible, and suddenly 
you will find yourself doing the impossible. Start by doing what is necessary, then do what's possible, and suddenly you are doing the impossible. Now, if we reframed Francis's wisdom here and, and we turned them into three questions, then we might have the makings of a framework that could be applied to almost any situation or any challenge or any task we might face in our lives. What is necessary in this moment? What is possible in this moment? And what is impossible? in this moment. These three questions, when taken with sincerity, provoke an intentional reflection that could lead to a different course of action, that could lead to different habits, that could lead to different behaviors as we approach these challenges and opportunities in our lives. What is necessary? What is possible? What is impossible? Here are a few examples of what I mean. Our, our, our high school and college and graduate students have recently returned to campus for the start of a new semester, and no doubt, as they've shown up on the first day of class, their teachers and their professors have given them syllabi. They've given them course outlines. Let's say that there is a sophomore in high school, and they've showed up the first day of school for their AP European history class, and they are given a syllabus that first day, and their first question in that sophomore year as they read through that syllabus may be this, what is necessary for me to pass this class? They begin there. And, and when it's asked with sincerity, when it's asked with intention, it will hopefully lead to action that will allow them to pass the class. They could stop with that question, of course. They could end it there. They could be completely satisfied with a passing grade. Their parents may not be, but they could be satisfied just hunkering down in that one question. What is necessary for me to pass. But they could also lean back into Francis's wisdom and ask a follow-up question. Not just what is necessary, but they could also ask, what is possible for me in this class? What is possible? And, and, and the student may discern in that moment that, that an A is actually possible. Or that scoring a four or a five on the AP exam is possible. And so they're motivated to make a decision that would lead them to accomplish those goals, that A or that four or that five. But there is still one more question they could ask. There's still one more question that's a, a little harder to pin down. Perhaps it's a little harder to imagine in the moment. We don't always ask questions like this one, but we could ask, the sophomore could ask in this moment, what is impossible for me in this class? There's an answer to that question. And perhaps what the student discerns in that moment, what is impossible for me in that class perhaps, is to be so compelled by the content of this, of this section of European history, they can be so compelled by what they are learning that they use it to shape the trajectory of their professional life or their vocational life. Or even perhaps, if you would ask them in the moment, would this seem possible? They'd say, no, it's impossible. Maybe what's impossible is that one day they would be teaching AP European history themselves. Like the other two questions, this third question, 
has the power to shape the student's decisions. It has the power to shape their action and to strive for, at that moment in this case, what seems to be impossible. Here's another example. Let's think of somebody who's just entered the season of retirement. Do you know about one quarter of our congregation, one quarter of our church, is in that retirement season? So the professional comes to that point of retirement and she asks herself, what is necessary for me to have a fulfilling retirement? She may discern that what is necessary for her is that she keeps busy, that she keeps her mind and her, her body active, that she makes it a priority to visit her grandchildren who live in another state. But she doesn't have to stop with that question. She can also ask what is possible in my retirement. And she may discern that what is possible is that she doesn't only have to spend time focusing on herself or her family, but that, but that she can act on a passion, that she can act on, on a need that she has discovered, that, that she can make a difference in somebody's life, that she can make a difference in the world. And of course, she can press on beyond that question of what is possible. She can ask something beyond just what is necessary or what is possible. She can say, well, what seems to be impossible? in this moment as I face retirement. And what might seem to be impossible for this one may be starting a nonprofit to act on that passion or that perceived need that she has seen, perhaps even applying for a grant out of our new social entrepreneurship venture that you're starting to hear about called Epiphany and something you'll hear about in the coming weeks. Perhaps it seems impossible for her to take a big idea and flesh it out into the world. You see, St. Francis's wisdom here, when framed as three questions, what is necessary, what is possible, and what is impossible, they can be powerfully motivating questions. Powerfully motivating questions. They can be life-defining questions and even world-changing questions if but we have the courage to actually act on the answers. What's amazing about this, I think, is that you can apply these questions to almost every sphere of your life. These questions work in almost every situation of your life. In your, in your marriage, you can say, what is necessary for me to have a healthy marriage? What is possible for me to have a, how to have a healthy marriage? Or what seems impossible for our marriage right now? It can be in your parenting. It can be in your schooling right now. It can be in your hobbies and your relationships. It, it, they can be asked about your physical health, about your mental health. It, it seems as if these questions uh, can be applied to almost any situation we face. What is necessary? What is possible? And what is impossible with these things? Now, here's the challenge. Some of us have a hard time moving beyond the first question. Some of us have a hard time moving beyond the first question. In many cases, what is necessary is the only question we ask. And it's not just because people like to cut corners or want to do the bare minimum. I'm sure there's folks out there that... That describes you. But that's not what I'm talking about here. I think sometimes we only ask the question, what is necessary? Because it takes a certain level of moral maturity and ethical sensibility to move to the next one. It most certainly takes courage. 
It most certainly takes fortitude that presses beyond conventional wisdom and beyond the status quo. And for many people, they just don't want to go there. The only reason they, they ask that one question is because they don't want to deal with the answers that come with the next two. It's too hard. It's too much work. It costs us more than we're willing to give up. To go beyond what is necessary, to move toward what is possible, even to consider what is impossible, is something not everyone wants to do. Do you remember Blockbuster Video? Raise your hand if you were in a Blockbuster Video ever in your life. Great. There's a whole bunch of young people who are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So Blockbuster Video, for those who don't know, uh, was a company that owned and operated uh, a DVD and video game rental stores. Originally they were VHS, then they became DVDs. And they were all over the United States. And in fact, in 2004, Blockbuster had over 9,000 stores nationwide. 9,000 stores. Their business model was to limit the number of days someone could be in possession of a rented movie so they could turn that movie or that video game over quickly to the next customer. And in order to incentivize that, they would charge late fees, right? Now, I found this hard to believe, but it's true. 70% of Blockbuster's revenue was directly related to collecting late fees. I mean, their business model, a Calvinist would love this based on total depravity, right? that we can't trust you to do the right thing and bring it back on time. 70% of its business funded that way. Well, in the year 2000, an entrepreneur named Reed Hastings tried to broker a deal with the then CEO of Blockbuster for $50 million. He wanted Blockbuster to buy his company at $50 million. Hastings' pitch was this. His company would manage the Blockbuster brand, not his own brand, but the Blockbuster brand online creating an internet-based ordering and delivery platform for movies and games, and that Blockbuster would also carry his company's inventory in their stores. And finally, this last caveat, that, that Blockbuster would adopt his business model, his strategy for the movie rental business. Instead of late fees driving revenues, you see Hastings' company sold subscriptions, and renters uh, could keep a movie as long as they wanted, and then they would return it when they were finally done with it, and only then would they be allowed to rent the next movie. Blockbuster executives scoffed at this idea. In fact, Hastings tried to get him to buy on several occasions, and they laughed him out of the boardroom every time because they believed, follow me here, that late fees were absolutely necessary for them to run a successful business. When they asked the question, what is necessary for us to be successful? They answered, customer delinquency and late charges. That's what was necessary. Now here's the thing, that was true. At the time, that was absolutely true. That's what was necessary for them to meet their budgets, for them to be profitable. The challenge was that they stopped asking questions, right? They stopped with what is necessary. They didn't ask what is possible, and they certainly didn't ask what is impossible. Impossible at that time could have looked something like this. I don't know, maybe, maybe internet-based subscriptions where you would get web streaming of movies and television shows. 
Impossible. Blockbuster went bankrupt in 2010. And Reed Hastings Company, Netflix, now has a market capitalization of 153 billion with a B dollars. And here's the point I'm trying to make with this illustration. In all spheres of life, we must be willing to move beyond the question, what is necessary? We have to be willing to move beyond that question. It begins there, but it does not end there. And these three questions born out of St. Francis's wisdom should not be parsed out or isolated. They, they sort of form a flow that waters outcomes that changes people's lives and can even change the world. What is necessary? What is possible? What is impossible? This morning, I've, I've worked through this lengthy introduction so as to provide some, some clarity as to the trajectory that the rest of this sermon will take in brief and what you can look forward to in the next two Sundays. Because what we're doing now is taking these three questions and actually applying them to a particular area of the Christian life. You see, we're in the season where we invite members and friends to consider their financial support of the church through a pledge campaign this year for both our $5 million plus operating budget for 2019, but also a second mile gifting opportunity for our new social entrepreneurship venture called Epiphany. And as I said earlier, you're going to hear more and more about that in the coming weeks. But for now, here's the focal point of this three-week series. What if we were to apply St. Francis's wisdom to Christian stewardship? What if we were to charge ourselves as followers of God and as friends of Jesus Christ to answer these three questions as it relates to money, to wealth, to material possessions? When it comes to financial generosity motivated by our Christian faith, we can ask these questions. What is necessary? What is possible? And what seems to be impossible for us in the moment? Remember, we have to keep these three questions together, not stopping at the first, and therefore we'll be moving through systematically this week in that first question and the next two weeks, those other two respectively. So when it comes to Christian stewardship, what is necessary? In 2 Corinthians 9, 7, I think Paul gives us a glimpse toward an answer. This is what he says in the seventh verse of the ninth chapter. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let's apply the question. What is necessary for Christian stewardship? First, Paul is clear. We must make up our mind about what we are going to give. This may seem obvious, but for so many of us, I know, Christian stewardship tends to be mindless. It tends to be haphazard. It tends to be accidental. Oh, I have a $20 bill in my pocket. I'll put it in the plate. Sometimes it is not thoughtful. And, and what is necessary in Christian stewardship is a thoughtfulness, is a prayerful decision to make up our mind, to not let it be haphazard, to make up our mind to decide what we are going to give. Let me say it in a different way. Our giving is not a result of round numbers or numbers that are easily divisible by 52 or 12. Some of you follow me here, right? That's not what motivates our giving. It's not what's left over after we spend everything else, nor is it a product of a guilt trip. 
It is necessary, I think, that Christian stewardship be a spiritual enterprise. That's what separates it from philanthropy. Christian stewardship is a spiritual enterprise, and it is necessary for it to be carefully considered. It's necessary for it to be intentional. It's necessary for it to be well thought out. It is necessary for it to be purposeful. Continuing in verse 7, we discover that it's also necessary that we give not out of a spirit of compulsion or necessity. Might we extrapolate it a bit here and say this, that we must not give out of guilt or altruism. Christian stewardship is motivated purely and unequivocally by God's love and grace poured out in your life. That's the core and central motivation. It's not based on a need the church has. We can't be thinking in those terms. That's not how we think here at First Presbyterian Church because we're not motivated by our need. We're motivated by God's abundant gift and God's love and God's grace, God's provision in every aspect of our lives. This is how Paul puts it. He says, God is able to provide you with every blessing and abundance so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. This logic, I mean, let's just name it, is counterintuitive to our culture because in an age of scarcity and in an age of zero-sum games, to hear that we have enough of everything is scandalous because there's people who walked in this room right now who say, I don't have enough or I'm not enough. You have that tape playing in your head over and over and over again. And friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ obliterates that line of thinking and says you are enough and you have enough because God is enough. And God has poured out everything you need to be faithful in your life. Finally, and I'll close with this. When it comes to Christian stewardship, we discover that it is necessary to be a cheerful giver. To be a cheerful giver. Whatever we give, we give in joy. Come on, smile, church. We give in gratitude. We give in grace. We give with hearts full. If filling out our pledge form or financially giving to the work of conviction and compassion here at First Presbyterian Church does not bring you joy, you're probably not giving enough. Right? I mean, some people say you should give till it hurts. But I say, give till you feel joy. Because God loves that cheer. That's what Paul says. God loves that cheer. It doesn't say God loves a hurting giver. God loves a cheerful giver. There's a man in this church who earns his uh, living on a, in a commission-based industry, so he doesn't make a pledge, which is fine. Uh, but he comes in every December into my office. The last four years this happened. Comes in, he has a check in an envelope, he hands it to me, and when he does, the transference of joy moves through his hand and that envelope into my body. I can feel the joy. He smiles and grins from ear to ear. He has great joy in being able to participate in what God is doing in and through this church. And I look at him and I know that God loves that. I know that God loves that cheer. So friends, when we ask that question of our Christian stewardship, what is necessary? We can say, 
It's necessary for Christian stewardship to be intentional, to be well thought out, to be purposeful. We can say that Christian stewardship needs to be motivated by God's love and by God's abundant grace and God's provision in your life. And finally, it is necessary for Christian stewardship to be a habit of joy, for it to possess the quality of cheer so that we may be people whose hearts are full in our generosity. May we act in this season on what is necessary for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. Amen. See you.